Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody, just want to issue a quick reminder before we get started. This program, this podcast has its own official app. It's the Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device. Go find it. Other People with Brad Listy app. It's very easy to get a hold of. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's very user-friendly. You go get the app at the app store of your choice. It's free. You download it, you get it on your device, and when you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50, free, waiting for you. And then, if you want to get access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there in the app. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. Every single episode of this show, available at your fingertips anywhere you go. That rhymed. You can hear hundreds of conversations with today's leading authors, screenwriters, editors. I've even interviewed some agents. You can hear me talk to George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Roxanne Gay, Sheila Hetty, Tao Lin, Susan Orlean, Edwidge Dantica, Frederick Barthelme, Daniel Handler, Austin Cleon, Amy Bender, Claire Bay Watkins, Lauren Groff, Hilton Owls. The list goes on. The Other People app. Go get it. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's almost free. All right, let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did it what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is ever so slowly disintegrating. This is created in a small, filthy room. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is a very special guest, and she is special because she is a good friend of mine, and uh, she also happens to be my writing partner in film and television uh, pursuits, which is something I haven't really talked about much. Uh, at all on this program, and you're going to hear more about it uh, momentarily. I am referring, of course, to Melissa Broder. Many of you are familiar with her work. She is a poet. She has published three collections of poetry to date, and now uh, has a new one, a new poetry collection coming out later this year from Tin House called Last Sext. So uh, in addition to that, and more immediately, 
Melissa is now an essayist. Her debut essay collection is called So Sad Today, and it is available from Grand Central Publishing uh, right now. The official pub date, March 15th, 2016. Very exciting. Uh, so Sad Today is an outgrowth of Melissa's hugely popular and uh, influential Twitter feed, the handle of which is at So Sad Today. That account, uh, I believe, has more than 300,000 followers. Last I checked, it is a beast, and it's one of the best things on Twitter. So uh, a little bit of a brief history. I don't want to be redundant because Melissa and I are going to be talking about this uh, in the interview, but she and I have known each other for several years. We started working together uh, on screenwriting stuff uh, two years ago, not long after she moved out to L.A., and uh, suffice it to say, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been great to get to know her better. She's one of my closest pals here in town, and I'm just thrilled for her. Uh, this is her year. She's having a lot of success. It's very well-deserved, and uh, she has a lot of talent, and she works very hard. Don't let her tell you otherwise. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, I have been the beneficiary of it, and uh, I, I guess we have uh, what I would call uh, an unlikely creative chemistry, or maybe all creative chemistry is unlikely. Somehow it works. I don't know if either of us are entirely sure why, or if one can ever be sure, you know, about such a thing. I do know this. Uh, when you spend time working in collaboration with somebody here in Hollywood, and you're running around town together, taking dozens and dozens of meetings, because that's what you do in Los Angeles when you're uh, trying to write for film and television, you take a lot of meetings, endlessly. And uh, that process, I think, has a bonding effect. I feel like we've been in the trenches together for the past couple of years in places like Burbank and uh, Studio City. It's been a lot of fun. So, uh, Melissa Broder and her new essay collection, So Sad Today, in just a moment. Before we get there, uh, I have a special guest. This is an exciting show today. Uh, Heidi Pittler, who has guested on this program before, uh, she is celebrating the paperback release of her novel, The Daylight Marriage, which is available from Algonquin Books. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you not in the know, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. You can sign up for it. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I pick the books uh, in collaboration with Jonathan Evison. So for more information on that, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, having said that, I do want to share with you, before we get started with Melissa Broder, a brief conversation I had with Heidi Pittler this past week. For those of you uh, who heard her episode on this program a while back, and I think it was uh, episode 355, Heidi, in addition to being a fine novelist, is also uh, the editor of the Best American Short Stories Anthologies, which I'm sure you've seen in your local bookstore. So uh, here uh, is Heidi Pittler and I touching base uh, about The Daylight Marriage, this month's official pick for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And, uh, you know, we talk about some other things, too. Here she is. This is Heidi Pittler. That's the biggest thing, I think, with kids. It's just your sleep and you become a crazy person. Yes. I don't know that I ever got it back. Yeah, you know, I don't know either. Like, there's sometimes I wonder, you know, you'll sit there and have these moments where you're like, is this a permanent shift? Like, is this part of my life, the part of my life that involves, like, regular sleep? Is that just done? And, uh, yeah, I'm still waiting for it to come back, and my kids are nine, but I think I'm weird. I don't don't listen to me. Yeah, my, well, my mother, my both of my parents are bad sleepers. My mom in yeah. particular, and I, I sometimes wonder, like, do I have that? Am I going to be that? Like, am I going to be 70 and getting, like, three and a half hours of sleep a night or whatever it is she gets? And Yeah, um, no, it's not fun. I hope not. I like to sleep. Yeah. I'm, I'm pro-sleep. Cool. I'm completely pro-sleep, and I miss it so much. I don't know what happened. Now, how do you get everything done? Because you edit America, like Best American Short Stories, you write books, you are raising, you're doing it all. Well, I only have two kids. I mean, I, I, I sit there and I often complain about it all. And then I think I should shut my mouth because the person I'm talking to has four kids and works six jobs. And um, But for me, I, um, I do it really badly. I have no advice to give anyone who do, does a lot of stuff. Um, I constantly come up with new systems and then abandon them. You know, I, I used to be, it, it really, for me, it all went to hell when I had kids. Before kids, I would wake up early, I would write my fiction, and then I would go to an office and I was an acquiring editor and it was all very orderly. And then my whole, you know, you have kids and I, I just, I started, um, my job as series editor of best American short stories right after having kids. So I, you know, everything was at the mercy of them and I was reading, you know, in doctor's offices and at night and, um, it's still kind of like that. I just squeeze in things. Um, you know, one thing I've started doing that I didn't used to do is I would, I go away to write because I think that it's just been harder and harder for me to focus on writing fiction at home. What, is that, what become, does that mean you go away? Like you go like on like go, a, I do. You know what? I'm a big fan of the DIY residency. So I'll, you know, I have a few friends that are writers and we'll rent a house somewhere and we'll go away for a weekend or a week. I can't usually do a week, but they usually can. And it's the best thing ever. We spend all day writing. You know, we like make dinner and drink wine at night and talk. And it's, I just find it's the most productive way for me to write and the most sane way. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I really, this is the way to do it, um, I, for me at least. It's like, on, and, I, I'm picturing like on Golden Pond, like in like a oh, cabin. Okay. And, and, I'm not that old. But no, I know. Yeah. No, I just mean like, I just mean location wise, not like you're Henry, you know, like you're hanging out with I Henry know. Fonda. I but. feel like it sometimes and I, I probably sleep about the way they did. But um, yeah, no, it is kind of like that. It's this weird little magical thing. And I used to, you know, I did it a while. I used to go away by myself and I thought I'm even crazier 
away by myself than I am at home by myself. So I think it's always good to like touch ground with other people at night yeah. and um, especially writers. Cause we're all the same kind of crazy. And um, so, so yeah, that's just been really helpful this past year or two is to just Where do you have go? a husband who's supportive and, and he's cool with it. And um, we go, there's a place in Western mass that I really like um, called Wellspring. And I just went down to the Cape with a couple writers and, and that was really great. And where else have I gone? Oh gosh. Oh, you know what I did? I did the other weekend. I had a reading up in Vermont and I went up a night early and I just holed up in the hotel. Yeah. And it did turn into a little bit of me being alone for too long. And so when I came out to my reading, I couldn't stop talking. That's what happens. You just become like, hi, I'm a crazy person. I haven't seen anyone in three days and I really want to talk a lot and you don't want to listen to me. And now, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I think like there could be some sort of like romance attached to the idea of like, I'm going to get away. I'll be in a cabin in the woods. There'll be no distractions. And then you get up there and you're by yourself and you're like, that might not be the healthiest choice. Like I think having right. a, l a little bit of balance, like having some, like you said, some way to connect with other people at night is the perfect, might be the perfect solution. I think it is. And I think um, unless you have, you know, a, a regular life where you work with other people and getting away is really necessary for me. I'm, I'm on my own all the time because I'm either reading, I'm reading for best American short stories or I'm doing freelance work on my own or I'm writing. Um, so I don't, I don't need a lot more time on my own. Yeah. Well, and then you're like, with regard to the best American short stories, like what, what part of that cycle are you in right now? So right now I am in um, the the part where I am um, waiting to hear from my guest editor about the two what are we at 2016 volume which comes out in October um, and and I've just started reading for the 2017 volume. Okay, so you're that far I, out ahead. I'm that far out ahead. And yeah, who, who is your guest editor for 2016? Can you say? Uh, it's Juno Diaz. Okay, so you yeah. It's it's been pretty cool, yeah. So, what do you do? You you and Juno like collaborate. You sh you just pass stories back and forth to one another, or? Well, it's it's different every year. I mean, the the way that it's supposed to go is I go out and read, and then I send them 120 stories, and they pick the top 20, and we go back and forth. But it really every year is so different. I have some people that want to read alongside me and go read their own stuff. I have some people that just sort of. I hand them the stories and they hand me the list and there's very little back and forth. I'm not sure with him yet. He's got a lot on his plate. Um, so, uh, you know, I think he's digging out from that and I'm trying to give him the space to do it on his own and figure it out. And um, it's always different than people think it's going to be. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear, I'm still waiting. I don't, I don't know what his thoughts are, but um, I should know pretty soon. Okay. And then uh, has anyone ever tried to bribe you to get into that? Um, I wish they no, did. No one ever I has. I get nothing. No I get nothing. No payola. I'm totally open to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, if anyone out there uh, has a lot of some extra cash on yeah. hand. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm good for that. Um. All right. And then anything else? And you're working on another novel or another? Uh... Yeah. So I'm working on a new one, and it's really different from the last one. Um. I just, you know, the last one was pretty dark and emotional, and so this one, I just thought I want it to be a little bit more. Like, I kind of have this bitchy side of me, and I'd like that to come out more. <laughs> <laughs> me too. The bitchy snark. Yes. So that's, that, this one seems to be a little more satirical, and it involves publishing and writing a little bit. And um, it's been fun. I mean, again, as my writing is always want to do, I always start out saying, this is going to be a hilarious romp. And then I'm like, you know, sliding down the bowels of hell, and I'm writing something dark again. But not as dark as the last one. I'll just say that.
All right. Well, uh, wish you well on it. Thank you so much Thank for you. talking with me. Congratulations on the paperback release of The Daylight Marriage. Thanks so much, Brad. And best of luck on, uh, on all fronts with all that you have going on. Thanks to you, too. All right, guys, there you go. That's Heidi Pittler, The Daylight Marriage. Her novel is available now in trade paperback from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Go get your copy. It's a good one. And uh, don't forget to check out the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Sign up. Support book culture. All right, then. Uh, I think that does it. I think we should just get started with the main event. Don't you agree? Let's get started. Let's get Melissa Broder on the program. Her new essay collection is called So Sad Today. It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. Uh, Just very pleased to have her here and to see this book roll out into the world. Here she is, folks. This is Melissa Broder. Like, could I be a good mother? Probably. I'm a good hound mom. Yeah, you're great. I'm, like, really good with the dog. By the way, that's a step before kids. I know. But see, this is the thing. (laughs) Everyone who has kids... Like wants you to have kids, and they're obsessed. I with it. don't. Yes, I, you do. I know you do. No. You feel like I am missing out on no. a miracle of life. I think on like the miracle. Like I will know no true. I will not know that kind of love in my lifetime if I don't have kids. But true. But, but I'm okay to miss out on that. Exactly. I don't need all the love. I don't and, need love in every incarnation. And you can get it in different ways. Yeah. Like you know, or like different. Like there are there are kinds of experiences that I won't have because I chose to have kids. Definitely. So I mean, you know, it's a trade off, and not right. everybody is meant to do it. So. But I still know that secretly you really are like have a fucking kid i w- i am happy for anyone who does because i know how much joy it brings right. but i don't judge people who don't want to do it right but here's the thing i'm like why is it a question of judgment like i guess because it's biological and most people do it yeah i mean you know it's like i'm conflicted about it you know we live on a very troubled planet and... i was talking to my therapist about it and i was like okay well here's the thing i was talking to a couple friends about it and I was like, okay, so 10% of me maybe might want to maybe have a kid. And she's like, yeah, having a kid fucking sucks. It has to be like 70% of you. And then I was talking to my therapist about it. And I'm always Googling like people who regret having children because I like, know they're <laughs> out there. Like no one will admit it, but that shit exists. And my therapist is like, you know what? Like you might regret not having kids, but there are people who regret having kids. And yeah. like, well, I mean, I think if you, so I know I'd have a fucked up kid. No, nah, I mean, everybody, every human being is fucked up. Um, I think that knowing you, if you had a, a child, you would love that child to pieces. Right. Maybe. But I mean, uh, like, are there people who don't love their child? Maybe. But I I don't know. It's a very deep I'm not bond. saying I wouldn't love my child. But I'm just saying, like, also, like, there is, like, the Sylvia Plath situation. Like, yeah. I kind of have the feeling that it would be too much for me. Well, you know, that's something to consider. Yeah. And why would it be? I mean, like, that, that brings up uh, maybe, like, the main thrust of your book and like this conversation which would be what mental illness yeah those those struggles like i mean that's definitely something to consider when it comes to just like why do we exist and like why would you bring another human onto this planet without its consent that's how i feel like i'm kind of like what if the kid doesn't want to be alive and then i'm like sorry yeah mommy wanted a baby yeah like whoops a daisy (laughs) i was just trying to fill the existential hole in my life and now you exist yeah well i mean welcome you know it's a I mean, I guess the flip would be you fall in love with somebody, you want to bring more love into the world, the right. world needs good people, you're committed to raising that child and uh, live, you know, living so a life. you're like a good citizen. I feel like you like know what you're doing. You're like a good <laughs> citizen. I'm not saying I'm not like a good human being. Sorry, I'm taking off. For the listener, Brad told me not to make noise, but I'm taking off my big leather jacket. <laughs> so um, it's it's rattling. Um 
Yeah, I don't know. It's like... I think you're a good person. You do? Yeah. Thanks. I think you underestimate yourself. I think, are most people good people? Yes. Like, most people are good people. Most people, people are, like, are, okay. People are trying. People, yeah, are, people they, are trying. They're failing a lot. A Every, lot everybody, fail, everybody fails a lot. Everybody has different challenges. But, like, I really do believe that most people are good. I don't think I'm, like, not a good person. I just, like, feel, like, a sense of cosmic terror that I'm being judged. Do you know what I'm saying? By, like, some sort of, like... Ex- like a cosmic arbiter. So, God. Well... For shorthand, we could call it God, right? But sometimes it's like an X, you know. Like I'm, I'm always being judged or judging myself, or projecting that someone else is judging me. Like I'd say ninety nine percent of the time, and like the one percent I'm not, it makes me very nervous to not be feeling like you're being judged. Yes, because here's the thing: is this a Jewish thing? Well, it's definitely part Jewish. Because I'm Catholic, and I have like the Catholic guilt, like right. the, the, like the residuals of that. I've, I think we've talked about this before. But I feel like you're able to get out from under that sometimes and like be kind of whole. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I think, like for me, the judgment and like the perception that people are judging me and my own judgment of self and like all this like internal goings on I think is a way of like avoiding sitting still and and being because I think like when you sit still like I love to be alone but it doesn't mean there's not like a hundred narratives going on but when and when I do my okay so I do my morning meditation right I do like my 10 minute meditation every morning and it's very like I do my meditation I check the meditation off the list and I don't have trouble being still then because I'm like doing my thing you know, but, but like, getting stillness out of the way, I'm getting stillness out of the way. I'm <laughs> laying it down. The stillness has been done. Right. But then like, ask me to be like totally still, not online, um, not engaging with like stuff, like not obsessing like any other time of day. And I, I get really scared. Like I get scared of that stillness. Yeah. I mean, cause like, I think when you get still, you start to feel your suffering, you yeah. know, like that, like I always call it the block of suffering. It's like in your chest. Oh, it's, isn't it so in your chest? It's weird. It's like solar plexus level, like this kind of knot or whatever. That's how I, it manifests for me physically. And like when you become aware of that, it's just kind of like, ugh. And it's I think totally in your chest. So much of um, phone time, so much of obsessive tweeting, so much of TV watching, so much of anything that we might consume to try to uh, distract ourselves is to try to distract ourselves from that. Yeah. But the irony is that I don't think there's any way to untangle that knot or to chip away at that block other than to be still and to actually, um, you know, go through it. You can't go around it. No, I I know. But I'm like, you'd think after like, God only knows how many years of 10 minute meditations. I'm like, can I, like, that's my safe space. It's like, can I just chip away at it? Like during that time? Like, why do I, (laughs) you are, you are, I know. And I know I am. I think the thing is though, it's like, yeah, like to feel To, like, feel deeply is to, like, really be alive, right? Right. And to really be alive, like, implicit in that is, like, the weirdness of existence. Sure. And, like, the fact that none of us really know what's going on, that's a little spooky. Right. And also, like, you know, that we are going to die. And so I think, like, those feelings, like, it's almost like if I can just, like, run from that stuff enough, if I can make, like, a little box of, like obsessing about my hair and like live in that box of your hair of, looks nice oh it does yeah thank you I've, i have been having kind of like a hair crisis lately oh yeah yeah i had like a oh i told you about that yeah i i like um i don't know it got like fried and then i like so i got like very obsessed with like the deep conditioners and i made like everything about the deep conditioners and like as painful and and as much like suffering as there was in the obsession with 
like my hair, myself and the deep conditioners, I feel like in some way that anxiety, that like contained anxiety with limits and is preferable to me on a lot of levels than the, than sort of the unbounded unbridled anxiety of like, dude, I exist. It's finite. I'm not sure why I'm not sure what happens next, which is fine. I don't think that much. I don't worry about the afterlife or anything. I'm not as worried about, I'm not that worried about death. It's the dying. Yes. What about you? I mean, okay. So a couple things I would say when it comes to like questions of super cosmic significance, why are we here? How big is the universe? Is there extraterrestrial life? I tend to think there is just based on statistics, but trying to wrap my head around like those kinds of answers, I feel a sense of humility and resignation. Um, thinking that like, you know, as a human being, like this is bigger than my mind is capable of processing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's going to be somebody out there who can explain it to me. But like so far, I don't think any human being has a fucking clue. It's right. way too big. And so in light of that, when I think about approaches to well-being, when I think about approaches to spirituality, whatever you want to call it, um, I'm, I'm very much less interested in considering that stuff than I am in considering how to uh, handle my own suffering. And right, how, the how, problem of how to live, just, right? Just, you may not get why. Yeah, I mean, just suffering and, <laughs> and like the alleviation of suffering. And if I keep my focus there, then I'm able to enjoy my life I think more than I would be if I were like constantly like it's a big universe. <laughs> you know, no, like... I mean, okay. Well, first of all, I want to ask you some things that you've learned along the way. Okay. But I want to say that like, here's the thing. Like sometimes like right now I'm able to like talk about that and like address the mystery of the big universe and kind of be like, ha 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 big universe, you know? And like, I'm sort of, it's at bay. Like the, I see it as almost like a window. Like, Right now, my shade is, like, pretty much down. You know, like, I'm sitting here with you. I'm, like, I'm going to go get in my car. Like, it, it, I'm not questioning what the car is. You know, I'm not questioning what this table in front of me is. Like, it's fine. And that, I think, there's, like, a luxury in that. There's a luxury in being able to, like, be absorbed in sort of the day-to-day, -day, right? Because the opposite of that is the, the times that I've experienced in my life, which is like with the time I started so sad today and, and many other times where like, I'm not able to get out of that. Um, like it's not a choice to think about that stuff. Like I am consumed by that stuff. By and, like the cosmic questions. And there's a dread, there's a dread with it. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a pleasant, like meandering through the like field. Well, okay. So is that, it's not a choice. So does that mean it's neurochemical? Yeah, I think, well, I think it's, I mean, it, the last time it, I was really rocketed there was um, when, uh, I guess it was like just about a, a year ago, I um, changed medications and um, I talked about this in the book. So I, I had been on Effexor for 11 years, which is an SSRI. Um, well, actually, I think it's an SSR something else, but for all intents and purposes, it's in the same like families as like Lexpro, Prozac, all those types of antidepressant type drugs and I'd been on it for 11 years and I felt that it just wasn't really working anymore. I had had an for your anxiety for my anxiety, like which the flip side of anxiety is depression, which I didn't even realize until a couple of years ago that that was the flip side of the same coin. But, um, and the reason why I felt like it wasn't working was I was actually having listeners. I was actually having lunch with Brad. Um, we, and we should stay, we, we are uh, writing, we're screenwriting partners. We are, we're partners. We're part yeah. yeah. We are create, we have a, we are a creative, partnership we are we're creative partnership you moved to la 
within like four months you're like on the phone like Ian Kale and talking about your manager and like you don't at the car wash and you like don't know how the fuck that happened and like Brad Listy is like your screenwriting partner and you're meeting him for coffee this happened in a whirlwind and yeah. maybe like a little bit about the origin story and yeah, then we'll get back we'll get back to effects her but like we will. you uh moved to Los Angeles a move about which you were uh, uncertain slash depressed. Yes, I was. I felt yes. I moved here because of family health situation, as detailed in in the book. So sad today, uh, on, on stands March fifteenth. No, so <laughs> yes. So I moved here because of that, and I had lived in New York for ten years. I didn't want to uproot my life. I was scared. Right. And um, a couple of other things. I think one of them just being my brain chemistry at the time. But um, that definitely that the knowing that I was going to be moving as a catalyst um, in the fall of twenty twelve. I was. I became aware that I was going to be moving, you know, within a year and the fear of that plus like whatever my chemistry was doing at the time and, you know, uh, other factors. There's always multiple factors. I was in a really bad cycle of anxiety. Like um, my panic attacks were really bad. Um, And I was sitting in my office where I worked in New York at Penguin Books as a publicist for many years, which is how I knew Brad. Like I knew Brad just through like literary scenes and um multiple scenes many scenes <laughs> so many scenes um and so i um i didn't know what to do with myself like i f- was afraid like the panic attacks were so bad every day and i've been having them for years but this was like a bad cycle of them like, it was really ratcheting bad. up it was it was a ratcheting it was like cycle of doom so okay so how would it manifest like take people into what it, what is one of these you're at penguin you're at your office you're right. in your job like one of these things comes on like what so happens basically, to you like i feel a strange sensation in my body that could just be a normal body sensation it's like you know i have i struggle like i have a i call, like a tickle in my throat or like i'm you know it's, a lot of times it's with my breathing like i'm like can I breathe? Um, or I feel a feeling that I'm not expecting to feel and don't really understand. Or I have maybe a scary thought. Like one of those things happens sort of almost like instantaneously. And then I have a fear response that is totally disproportionate to what has happened. I have my, the fear response that I have is the kind of fear response that someone would have if they were being at a seven 11 and the place was being held up or if um, it's that intense, it's like, fight or fucking flight like so basically for me the symptoms are um it's always the breathing like i feel like i'm suffocating Uh i feel like i'm suffocating smothering choking sensation tightness in the chest um a lot of times i get like a kind of dizziness like my vision gets blurred um when i get really really deep into it there can be something that happens that feels like that sensation you have when you're on mushrooms or acid where there's a sense of um unreality or hyper reality like you know when you look at people uh, when you're tripping and they kind of look like they're made of like rubber or you sort of see from a different context and it's like really weird yeah i get that jesus yeah and um this sa- does not sound fun no it's really it's really awful um and so so how, how often was this happening during this right. phase like how often would you have one of these where well, you're in the midst of your life and potentially even in the midst of like a work situation right. and how do you what do you do well to back up a little bit um so 11 years ago, I got sober. And the few years before I got sober, I was having this experience every morning within 20 minutes of waking up. And I didn't know what it was. And a lot of that was I was in withdrawal. Like every, you know, I, I drank or and used pills and downers every day. So I would wake up in the morning and I was going into withdrawal. And withdrawal is a major catalyst for anxiety. So I started having these panic attacks. I didn't know what they were. Um, at the time, I started dating a woman who had them herself, and so she told me – she would just be like – she had this dog, and she was like, walk the dog, walk the dog. And she introduced me to <laughs> – like, she introduced me to the world of um, psychopharmacology, and I found a psychiatrist. I found, like, some really bad – there's really bad psychiatrists who are just, like, pill pushers. So they basically 
one of them got they got me on a Fexer, um, which was good for me. First, they tried a different one; it didn't work. But they also got me on um, Ativan, which is like a Valium. Type okay, of thing. and so when you're getting sober and you are somebody who is yes. using downers and drinking alcohol right. on, on a daily basis. How does that factor in? Like, how do these kinds of drugs, like Effexor, factor into a pro, you know, program for sobriety? Well, here's the thing. So, Effexor, um, when I was drunk all the time, Effexor didn't do anything. Um, the Ativan, which is the short-term sort of Valium, that's the kind of thing you can get addicted to. Um, the Valium-type stuff, or Ativan, benzodiazepine, Xanax, uh-huh. um, that stuff I um, tapered off of in early sobriety. First, I quit drinking, um, and then, like, it just... It was kind of lifted from me in a strange way. Basically what happened, so um, so I got really into yoga when I was 25. And I was always showing up to these yoga classes, like, fucked up. Like, there was alcohol coming out of my pores. And one of my yoga teachers <laughs> said to me, you don't have to drink. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. Like, if you had my level of sensitivity, you would. Because now not only was the alcohol and drugs, like, um, was I coming down from it and having these panic attacks, but I was using it to treat. The anxiety, the anxiety that had always lived in me and the discomfort in my own skin. But these panic attacks, as they had started ratcheting up, um, you know, and becoming every day, like I always had to be on something. Right. Um, And so I was like, ha, ha, ha. So a couple months later, I had had a particularly bad weekend. I was, um, I, oh, I fucked a coworker who I didn't, who I like said I wasn't going to fuck anymore. Cheated on my boyfriend. I was always cheating. Cheated on my boyfriend. um, Woke up in the coworker's bed. Um. And I realized I had run out of my prescription for benzodiazepines. And I, like, dragged him kicking and screaming to the, like, we, like, went to the pharmacy. I'm, like, sweating in line, like, already coming off everything. Um, And then I was, like, fuck, like, this is so And I'd gotten really drunk at this work party and, like, said a lot of bad things. So I was, like, okay, I'm, like, uh, uh, I shouldn't, like, okay, maybe I'm going to, like, stop drinking hard alcohol. And I had never, ever at one time before I had tried to quit drinking, it lasted for 24 hours and it was so <laughs> painful and lonely. And I was like, no, like I just will not do this. Right. But I was like, maybe I'll quit a hard alcohol. Well, like by noon I'm drinking beer and like eating like tacos that night. My friend and I went to like an AIDS benefit and, um, I was like so fucked up and at three in the morning we left in a cab and, um, I had, th- I had been drinking an Amstel light and I brought the Amstel light in the cab and I may have bought some more Amstel light when we got, back to her apartment at the deli, went upstairs, had the answer like the next morning, the next day when you're 25, you can do things like be fucked up all the time and go to yoga. The next day at noon, I'm in my, um, yoga class and I don't know what happened, but I'm in there and all of a sudden I hear my te- same teacher. She's teaching the class, but she doesn't say this in the moment. And I hear her say, you don't have to drink today. Like I hear that in my head and people had said, you're an alcoholic. Do your parents know you're an alcoholic? They called me cunty McDrinks a lot. Like, you know, I really like people um, called you that. Yeah. This guy called me cunty McDrinks a lot. Who the fuck is this guy? He was like a loser. I don't okay. know. Okay. Um, he was like this guy. Like, <laughs> he was an Irishman. <laughs> yeah. No, he was like this guy I dated in San Francisco. No, he was a Jew. I like oh, met him on J date. Okay. He was like a fellow Jew. Um, but so anyway, so I'm in her class and all of a sudden it was like, you don't have to drink today. And I don't know what happened. But, like, I went to brunch after that, and I drank it everywhere. So if you're actually at a place like brunch where it's sanctioned to drink, like, right. I would be drinking. Right. Mimosas. Just everything. Everything, I mean, yeah. Yeah, like, no, like, screwdrivers. Or, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I liked whiskey, <laughs> but probably, maybe not at brunch. Maybe I would do, like, a screwdriver or something, like, multiple. So I didn't drink that day. And the next day, I didn't drink. But I was like, you can't do nothing. You have to do, like, you can't live in this world just, like, me and the world. Like, that's insane. So, um... So I continued to like smoke weed, like a lot of weed and um, take a lot of like painkillers that weren't prescribed to me. Like I remember I was like 
up in upstate New York sitting by this fireplace like on a lot of morphine and I was like this sobriety is amazing (laughs) I was like this is the shit and then um and at the time and I was also still taking um effects or which I think was now starting to kick in more because I wasn't drinking and benzodiazepines um out of like which is again that class of drugs that's like out of Xanax whatever so um, a month later, I was like walking home. I lived in the East Village and I passed this church and there were like all these gay men standing outside the church. And I was like, and I talked to them and like, I was like, they're not going to church. Like, I don't think they're going to church. And these people um, helped me get sober and I have not had a drink or a, a, a you know, medication that was not prescribed to me since then and how like many years 11 years it's been 11 years good for you yes well i've had a lot of help but yeah. um it's the best thing that ever happened to me but so in early sobriety what i did was i i got off of um the benzodiazepines because they are addictive now i don't have any opinion on what people who are sober do like what you do is between you and your doctor i have a lot of friends who are sober who take um ativan as needed and if i ever get to the point where it's between like Ativan and suicide or, you know, like the shit and the shit has been really bad, but I've always just chosen in my sobriety not to fuck with like the benzos because I just feel like it'll cause me more anxiety. Like I don't want to be sitting there like because it's not the thing, a thing you take every day. It's something that you sort of administer to yourself. I'll obsess. Like I obsess when I'm like eating a fondue and it has like I can tell it has Pernod in it. And like a lot of people drink, eat food that has wine cooked out. But you wouldn't I, drink a, or you would not drink a, a kombucha. No, I don't fuck with kombucha. I, I just, you know what? I like to keep it clean. Not because I think that, like, I'll lose my sobriety over a kombucha or, like, <laughs> a fucking, like, I don't know, like a fondue. Right. But because I know I don't use Listerine. Well, I use... Melissa's, Melissa's eating a lot of fondue and drinking kombucha. Yeah. We're like, worried about her. We're worried about her. She's on the edge. <laughs> no, just because, like, I don't want to have to suss it in my mind. I like to keep things very clean. Right. You know? So some people do eat who are sober do eat food cooked in wine, but I just don't want to taste it. Like, I just don't want to be involved and it's easy enough. Clean to break. Not. I get it. Yeah. I get it. So why, when I was, when I was coming, but having said that, if I met, if it's ever the point of like, you know, if shit is like, and shit's been really bad in sobriety, but I've just like chosen not. You've to been able that. to, you've been able to power through somehow. I've been able, yeah. Like I've just, and, and people, even my psychiatrists, like who know I'm sober and are like, you know, let me give you like Ativan for a few days just to like get through this. And I'm just like, I'm not a hero. It's nothing like that. It's just a question of knowing my own obsessiveness mm-hmm. and knowing that I will torture myself over like, well, like how anxious am I? And like, uh-huh. am I taking this to get fucked? Cause I love to be high. I love to be fucked up. Like right. I want to live my idea. Like when I hear the word enlightenment or spirituality, I still think just like heroin on a Lotus. <laughs> like that's what I want. I want to be not, I don't want the world to touch me. I want to just like be okay. Like this magical, mystical okayness. Right. So that's the scoop. So, so I had been on Effexor uh, for I guess last spring was ten years, and the effects are had been good, you know. Um, and every couple of years, though, I would go through these cycles where, like, I would say I'd, I, you know, I'd have anxiety and panic throughout my life. But every couple of years, I'd have like maybe a bad, a really bad panic attack, which would then I'd get really worried about it and start obsessing about having another one, and it would bring me into this cycle of panic. And that's happened maybe. I mean, I've had panic attacks a lot throughout my sobriety, but these cycles of really intense ones have happened maybe like. I'd say five cycles, five or six cycles throughout the past 11 years. So, um, so 
Like last spring you had what? So like Okay, well, so when I started So Sad Today, I was having one. And I was like in my office. And, um, and also I was really depressed too because, you know, having these panic attacks every day can really beat you down because you feel very alone. Right. Like it's not like I just feel very alone in it like even if I I don't want to tell anyone that it's happening and even if I have a psychiatrist a therapist I mean it takes a lot to keep this ship afloat like I've got a lot of help but I still can feel really alone in it well it's weird you know because I and tell me if this is correct but it's like it's it's not necessarily a matter of shame though I guess there can be some part of that where like you don't want people to know you're not okay but it's exhausting to just tell people over and over like if you were to tell people and share this like that's an involved conversation. Yes. So part of the isolation is born from just wanting to avoid that exhaustion. It's both of the, it's shame. It's yeah. wanting to avoid that exhaustion. I parallel it to like, um, like when, you know how people say you die alone? I feel like panic attacks in a lot of ways are little deaths, especially when you think you are dying. And it's kind of like that. Like you're very alone. In it. Well, for me, I'm very alone in it. And um, so... So I didn't know what to do. And I had had my own Twitter account, Melissa Broder, which I, you know, of course, who doesn't want the glory of a great Twitter account? I'd been trying to make that <laughs> shit good for years. And like, it was good. You know, it was like a good Twitter account. Like, but, um, I just started this anonymous Twitter account and I started just like literally tweeting into the void. I followed three people, like three weird tweeters. I like just thought were funny. Um, I had zero followers. The handle is at so sad today. The handle is at so sad today. Um, and like. What, and I just started tweeting into the void and it was weird. Like people started following it. I guess like I, you know, maybe one person I was following followed back, retweeted and it started getting bigger and bigger. And, um, I did after a couple of months, like I, I had changed my medication. I'd done some other, like not changed it. Sorry. I had increased my effector, done a lot of like healing work, whatever. Like I came out of this bad anxiety cycle, but of course, like people ask is so sad today, a character. And I'm like, no, it's a part of me. So that part always lives in me. So there's always something to tweet. You sure, know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, I'm always having disappointment. And, and people sometimes give you shit for tweeting about depression. Yeah, like oh, that, definitely. You know, they think that you're belittling it or they think that you're making light of something that shouldn't be made light of or trivializing. And you totally. Get, you I'm get... like, listen, brah, this is my shit. I'm not tweeting. I'm not tweeting about your depression. I'm right. not tweeting about your anxiety or your, I'm tweeting about my own experience. This is where PC Twitter and PC culture gets to, gets gets me uh, well, a little riled up. PC, do you think it's PC? I would think that from like a social justice perspective, I would think that it's actually kind of ableist to tell someone what to say about their own depression. Whatever it is, like the thought police, like they well, just, just don't follow it. What do you, t you know, shut, well, the, I shut think, the fuck but up. I, I think that the, the social justice crew that you're referring to as the thought police might actually be on my side. Like in the sense of it's my narrative. Like, don't tell me how to like, don't tell me how to like speak my narrative. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't, um, like, Man, don't mansplain me, bro. Don't mansplain <laughs> my mental health. Right. Brad and I always joke about mansplaining because Brad likes to mansplain me like like he always has a good recommendation for like a fan. Like you must buy this this fan or this vent. But it's nice. Yes. I feel like you could rent Brad and like take you'd want him to like take him to court with you. What's that? Like, I'm like I'm like, a, I'm like You should be rentable. I'm like Angie's list. He's totally <laughs> Angie's list. He's like a human Angie's list. So, uh, so, okay. So, so, all right. So effects are forward, so whatever. sad today. The Twitter account is born in New York in the state of one of these, like, you know, concentrated panic attack clusters. Exactly. You got it. And then, and then, so, all right. So I moved to LA, the shit, the Twitter's blowing up bigger and bigger. Also, I love it because it's great for my depression because I mean, 
who doesn't love dopamine? I'm like, for the first time in my life, I'm actually popular. No one knows it's me, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. You're still getting the, oh you're still getting the favorites and the who retweets. Popular. I've never been like cool. What blew it up? What was it? I mean, aside from the fact that you were you were producing a lot of tweets, which you have to do if you want following, you have to deliver yeah. the goods, and they were good, and they were funny, and they were relatable. But like, was there something? Can you point to like an event that was like watershed where it was like, oh my god, this took it to the next level? Well, I think there were a couple things. I mean, it was weird. Like when I would go on there, after I you know I'd, I'd tweet every couple of days sometimes, and I'd go on there or like every day, and I would be like, Jesus Christ! Like the interactions were crazy. So I think there was like a natural a groundswell if you will like that just happened organically but then sky ferrera started retweeting it and that's i think like what took it to another level and then Katy perry like maybe a year after it existed or maybe not even maybe like a year and a half uh and what she has like millions and millions yeah she has like what 20 million followers i don't even I have know no idea but, but a lot of millions. like like yeah like tens of millions of followers so she started retweeting it. okay so my, and miley cyrus and miley cyrus so these people we're talking like, let's just say 30 million people are yeah. getting a retweet from one of these people. Right. What? But I think there were like, honestly, I think I had like, before they even, I, I mean, I don't know I exactly, but I think I had like 30 or 40,000. Like, followers. There were a lot before Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus. So you'd built the foundation. Yeah, I did. And Sky Ferreira. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that but, retweets like the, her, she, I mean, I think it was her. Who knows who did it before her? Like right. I know the guy from Vampire Weekend was, I don't know. I wouldn't even know these people were following because I wasn't used to having this many followers on my other account. So it's hard to tell who's following you. So I wouldn't even know. And then like I'd get these teens being like, introduce me to Ezra Koenig or like <laughs> introduce me to Sky. And I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah. I don't know Sky Ferreira. And then I, I was like, wait a second. And I would look at her feed and be like, oh shit, she follows. Right. So that was kind of like how that thing worked out. Okay. And so what is a, what is a Miley Cyrus bump look like? Like, did you ever measure like after she retweets you, are you getting like 10,000 new followers? Like, what do you... Hmm. You know, it's funny. It's probably less than you might think. You get a lot of bots. Uh -huh. A lot of bots. But I think it just sort of... It's exposure. Yeah, it's like people more like... People fave more than they follow. Teen, teen girls and, and women in their... Teen, well, I always call it the teens, right? But actually, it's a, I mean, people of all ages follow this account, as we'll, we'll, we'll explain how Brad was following it. But... <laughs> um, so I think that, like, I always say teens, but I do think it was the teen, like Miley and Katy Perry and uh, Sky. They they retweet to teen girls, and teen girls like they're just their enthusiasm. Like when they like something, they really they like really it. Fucking like yeah. it. So I think that's kind of what happened. It wasn't like necessarily the amount of them, but it was just those girls like really saw that I'm like fucking so immature and have the heart <laughs> of like a sixteen year old and really liked the account and. Yeah. I think like it spread a lot in that way too. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that there is something about the emotion and the intensity of the emotions that you are dealing in with that account that is yeah. very relatable to a teen. But I would guess that most teenagers don't have the ability to articulate the geography of those emotions the way that you can so i think that that may be the right. service that it's providing to those those young girls and that's why they're getting so excited because they're seeing themselves in it they're feeling themselves in it but it's like any kind of in any kind of writing that we really respond to it it, it kind of uh, art, articulates or clarifies things that we feel but might not be able to clarify ourselves i think you're right so that's maybe well it. put yeah so 
Um, I was following it. So Brad was following it. You moved out here. So I moved out here. And I, okay, so as I said, I have my personal Twitter account, Melissa Broder, and then I had, I have my So Sad Today account. And no, and still no one knew, knew it was me. It was, this was like the best secret I've ever kept in my life. <laughs> Actually, I had told one person at this point, one woman on the internet. Um, but that was it. And Who was um, it? My friend Molly Soda. She's a... Oh, yeah. I don't know why I told her. It was like we were DMing one day and I was, or something. She was safe. Yeah, because like I felt like she would get it, you know? Right. But actually, the difference between telling... The difference between having zero people know and one person know was like a bigger deal somehow to me than like the difference between like one person and like 20. Yeah. Or like 20 and everyone. Like Molly Soda was like the Alfred to your Batman. Yeah, she was totally Alfred. And also, I mean, I don't even know if she's paying that much attention, but like... just like that I was no longer anonymous, like I felt very self-conscious. Even just that w- one person. I was going to say, does that affect your ability to do it? You know, it's one thing to be That tweeted. affected me more than like, like once I came out as so sad today to everyone, like it didn't really affect it. I still feel very protected. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there is like a... That's strange. Well, it's still like the wall of the internet. It's not, yeah. like, it's not like you're in a room with like an <laughs> audience of, uh, you know, 300,000 people watching you type. Yeah, you but know? I type, I tweet things from there that like if I said on Facebook or even on my personal Twitter, people would be like... Um, are you okay? Right. Yeah. It's a safe space somehow. It's a safe space. So, so yeah. So Brad and I were at some reading and yeah, we um, were at Skylight Books. Skylight Books. And so I had been, I have, I, so I had been, I was like, well, if my so sad today account has this many followers, like I want my personal account to have a lot of followers. So I had been like retweeting my personal account. I call it the so sad today bump. So I would retweet it. And, like, leave it for, like, 10 minutes so that, like, my tweet would get, like, a lot of – my Melissa Broder tweet would get, like, a lot of followers. And then, like, quickly unretweet it so it wouldn't be, like, in the So Sad Today feed, right? Along with all the other people. I retweet a lot of people. So my Melissa Broder account started getting, like, lots of retweets and faves. So Brad, like, corners me at this book event. And he's like, <laughs> what are you doing? He's like, how is your Melissa Broder Twitter account? Because you had like, what, 12,000 maybe followers yeah. at that point. And I'm looking at your tweets and you've got like... It's like, they're four, not that good. I mean, yeah, you've got like 458 <laughs> retweets. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm looking at my tweets and I'm like, if I get five retweets, I'm excited. Aww. So I cornered you. Um, look, look at you pitying me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about what you could do differently. On I know, Twitter, I but... know, I know, I know. So anyway, I corner Melissa. I'm like, you, what the fuck is going on? This is incredible with your Twitter and... Uh, she pulls me aside. She tells me, I have something to tell you. She explains to me that she's so sad today, at which point I'm like, wait a minute, that's you. Yeah. I had been following it, not knowing it was you. Yeah. And had been aware of it for a while and had been a fan of it. And so that was the genesis of our screenwriting partnership because- yeah, I was like, why aren't you doing anything with this? I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, write YA? Like, I'm a poet, okay? I spend my time, <laughs> like, with my head in the oven, basically. Like, why? Like, I'm not on writing- On effects or- Yeah, on effects or, like, trying to stay alive. Like, why? Like- no, I'm not writing why. So we kind of came up with this an idea and we basically just made these teen characters and we wrote a script. Um, and then we got like, okay. And then we got agents. We got so agents. We have agents and managers. Right. Shout out to, to Chris and yeah. Bill. Our team. Our team. <laughs> <laughs> Julian and Brad. Julian and Brad. And at this point, this was when I was like, oh fuck, like how did LA, like how did this happen? Like this was, you moved to LA and you do not like. You really did. You got to LA and like all of this happened pretty quickly. Like within like a year. Yeah. And all, then. All thanks to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it's a team effort. We have yeah. a weird, like this is the thing I would say about us. I don't know how to game it. It's like, I guess for whatever reason, the combination of our two uh, creative temperaments, personalities. Brad's like the architect. He yeah. like mansplains the house. Okay. He like builds the house. Yeah. And I'm like the interior decorator. <laughs> like I go around and I'm like, uh, this is disgustingly ugly. Um, Dick, like 
dickhead is not hyphenated. Um, <laughs> Especially when it comes when it comes to like we were writing teen comedy. Yeah. So it was like um, the, the the jargon. Well, you know that stuff. Yeah. Like you know, so you would save me for myself because I can be a little bit antiquated in my. Well, I'm, I'm like I'm like mid nineties teen. Ladies, actually. <laughs> So anyway, like the loss of her virginity, her yeah. V card. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> can you not say V card? So anyway, so I clean it up. Yeah, you clean it up, and like I, I think that there is like as somebody who's written, um, you know, or tried to write books uh, throughout my adult life, and you as well, like writing poetry and now writing an essay collection. You know, these are endeavors that you undertake individually, and so to then shift into a writing collaboration yeah. is a, is kind of a you know it's a different beast very and i don't know there's something mystical about it I there don't, is i don't understand it it's really. a mystical union i don't want to i don't want to question it too much but no so far question. so far it's worked well yeah we wrote that first script in like a month we got our people we got our people on the basis of, we got, got them fast we've gone to like a thousand meetings so many so many meetings so many, so many i've gotten so many bottles of water <laughs> and i don't even like water <laughs> Though that one person gave us uh, what was like fruity flavored sparkling yes. water, and you got very excited about I that. I would actually love what was I don't remember the brand, but if I knew the brand, I would say I'm like I want so sad today to have like a like if so sad today doesn't do any ads on the Twitter, um, even though people like offer, but just I don't want to like pimp it out like that. Right. But if it's something that I actually love, I would like I'm like please cereal, like please cinnamon yeah. toast crunch if yeah. you're out there, or like Quest bars, like. <laughs> Give me free Quest Bars. I will promote you. Quest Bars are actually, I think, those are the ones that are actually pretty good. They're delicious. But they're, they also, like, ingredients-wise. Yeah, like, they're not bad for you. They're not as bad. I live on them. You do. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very passionate. So, anyway, so <clears throat> so we sold a show to MTV. Yeah, we sold that uh, teen show to MTV. Like, you go in and you pitch. Emma Roberts was involved. Emma Roberts. Yeah. Um, yes. Like are the, we name dropping? We're, like, circle. This is the part where I would just turn off the podcast. I don't know. Like I just. I would turn it off. This you guys is, can turn it off. This is the, but this is kind of like a this is a scoop. But this is what a, happened. This was our secret life. Yeah, and like I haven't. We didn't tell. We haven't said it publicly yet. I've never talked about this it. This happened. This happened. We sold a television show in 2015. In 2015, to MTV, Brad Listy and Melissa Broder did. Yeah, it was and never in Variety. It was never in Variety, and uh, you know, you what happened? And they're not going to do anything with it. And at, neither of us are rich. At least, yeah, at least now. Yeah, but we, we did. We, we did. did get, we're we not got, rich. I have a little savings account now. Which yeah, is nice. we got paid a little bit of money. We went through the process. You're in a room, you're pitching. Suddenly you have, um, you know, people who are attached as executive producers and you're going over the pitch and you're doing all this stuff and there's something very performative about it. Very. That we had to sort of learn. You know, you have to kind of go in and be the music man and give the, give the sale, you know, make the sale. Well, I think the best part was my manager, um, our manager was like, and like Emma Roberts' manager were like, don't say anything about your anxiety disorder. Like they want, because basically like writing for TV is very social, right? So it's like, they want to know that I can like actually come in and like, which I'm not even, oh, Brad will kill me for saying this. I'm like, I'm not even convinced that I can, but that I can come in and sit with a bunch of people and like write, you know, with them in tandem in a room. Um, so they were like, don't say anything about your anxiety disorder. Like you don't want them to think you're like not able to do it. And I'm like, well, okay. And then like, so we're talking to them about this, like our idea for like this teen show and the guys and the producer's like, okay, we really like this. But the one thing we're most interested in is the anxiety and depression. And like for the next 20 minutes, I was like, well, and I just like walked them through. That was really when we saw, I think that was yeah, when we that sold was when the we show. Sold it. it was just like, I was like, all right, if you want to know about panic disorder, let me tell you. So, 
Um, so one never knows. But anyway, so nothing's going to happen with that. That we know of. Well, I always like to say that, like, you know, they they just aren't making it this season. Yeah, you never know. I mean, they own it and, like, they have the option do to do... Do they still own it? I guess they still own they it. They do. So we'll see what happens. I mean, when this collection of essays blows up and becomes a national sensation, maybe they'll have uh, second thoughts. Well, by the way, that just because they're they have that teen TV pilot, the rights to So Sad Today, the book, are still available for movie or TV adaptation. The Twitter feed is available. Jerry Bruckheimer, if I you're mean, listening. I will always have to tweet, but yeah, if anyone like famous or whatever is listening and they want to like make it into a TV show yeah. about existential despair. Let's do it. It's still available. Let's fucking do it. In so- any event. All right. So that happened. Then we wrote a script about my open marriage. Right. Then we wrote one about like teen football because I felt bad because I was like all right if we have to write one about anxiety and depression and then we're writing one that's like basically about my vagina I was like all right Brad we can write some shit about football so we wrote about football I'm not that huge of a football fan we did a super bad You're not? I, yeah I mean I'm, I have mixed feelings about it now okay. that like the brain injury stuff like, oh yeah I legitimate you know it's a legit person uh, it's a legitimate these things into account it's a legitimately troubling aspect of the game right. uh but I will say that, like the 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 boy, it was more boy centered as opposed or male centered as was. opposed it to was female a centered. Dude. Yeah. yeah, and it was uh, it's kind of like super bad in terms of its tone. Yeah. So and then we've done we've done lots of projects. We've done lots. Of, we're, we got pro, we got projects coming <laughs> out the ass. Yeah, we got, and we're we're a productive team, and uh, I feel like we generate a lot of material, and that's part of the the mystical thing about it. It's that's just the mystical connection. Yeah, think shit happens. We're able to do it. So, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about. So last year when I had to change meds, oh, right. yeah. I don't remember why we were talking about that, but I feel like it's... It's effects or it's the panic yeah. attacks, it's the sadness, right. and so, then these meds eventually get to a point where they're not... Right. The effects are just like I felt like it wasn't up to snuff anymore, and I felt that way because I was having lunch with Brad, yeah. and... Um, I induced the, worst, the, the, induced the panic attack that broke the a spiral camel's of back. Hell. <laughs> so I was having, I was eating with Brad and in my neighborhood and all, and I hadn't like really eaten enough that day cause I have like body dysmorphia issues and, um, <laughs> we were eating and then like we were supposed to be doing work and I had my dog with me and I just felt like very stressed out, I think, because like, I felt like I wasn't giving you enough of my time that day and I f- sort of knew you needed like a little more of my time and like I felt bad that I had brought the dog because we were supposed to be like doing work. I don't know. There was just like a lot of like guilt and whatever. Anyway, so I had a bad panic attack and usually no one will ever know if I'm having a panic attack. Like Brad and I go into these meetings and I have them all the time and after I'm like, did you know that I was like basically <laughs> suffocating and unable to breathe? And he's like, no, I had no idea. But so in this case, it was so bad and I felt so dizzy and I got vertigo, which is like a something that does happen sometimes to me, but it's rare that I actually voiced, I actually said to Brad, which is actually a sign of my comfort with you. But I said to him, I was like, I I feel really fucking weird. We have to go. And we, we were near my house. Check please. Check please. (laughs) I was like, I'm having, I think I'm having bad panic attacks. So we walked back to my house and while one might think it might feel good to like actually say to someone who like is a friend of yours and cares about you and you care about them. Like, I had, I'm having a panic attack. And to put those things in the light, what ended up happening was I became terrified that now, first of all, with Brad, I had now used up my... I could never again have a panic attack with him, with you, that made us have to leave a situation because then I'm just like... No, you can always have a panic attack with me. Right, but where I had... But, but then I'm like getting in the way of our, like, working our whatever. Empire. Yeah, oh. like I'm not <laughs> up to snuff or something. And then also just like, you know, to reveal that about yourself, it's like kind of makes it real and it means like if you say it then it's like if i don't know i've i've written about this just like that you you feel exposed and i it is i feel like i have one panic attack card with like each human being but if i like 
every time I meet with someone, I'm having to leave. Like, that's a little weird. So that, of course, all that kind of perfectionistic thinking spiraled me into, I started having panic attacks every day. And I was like, all right, I'm on Effexor. So we, 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 uh, increased my psychiatrist and I increased my Effexor, but it like didn't do anything. I just felt like over medicated and like it wasn't doing anything. Right. So we decided we were going to take me off Effexor and on try Prozac. So for the first time in 11 years, we started like reducing the effects or reducing the effects or and adding Prozac and I started doing really well. But then, um, when I went completely off the effects or like three days later, I was away in the desert and I had like one of the worst panic attacks I've maybe ever had. It was like, I would call it less of a panic attack and more of like facing my, facing like the existential doom and like was that when it was like cloudy in the desert when it was like yeah. it was like rainy in Palm Springs yes. or, oh and it was like I was facing sort of like I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt that like my basically the only way to describe it is like you know when Alice goes down the rabbit hole yeah. I felt like my mind like there was no bottom like I kept thinking I want to go home but I felt like even if I went to the home where I live in Venice like it wouldn't be home like there is no land there's nowhere to land you no, just yeah. keep falling because we don't know that's how it felt and it was fucking terrifying so um and what the reason for that was because i was completely off the effects sir and but i didn't realize that that was the withdrawal from that because i had been fine as i was decreasing it so i really just thought it was like over for me yeah it's over uh-huh. and the feeling and the residual feelings of doom after an experience like that you know you're just shaken you're very shaken so I remember the next day I tweeted something and like Brad called me and was like, are you okay? And no one ever does that when I tweet shit from so sad today. But I guess like people could tell that like, I really wasn't like, like I'm usually not okay, but I was like, but I'm usually okay within my not okayness, but I was like really not okay within my not okayness. And that was not, I mean, it was scary. It's scary to be vulnerable. Even when you tell people like everything, you still don't tell people anything. Uh huh. Well, I mean, there's, yeah, there's parts of yourself that you always kind of keep under lock and key or, or I think sometimes um, there can be aspects of your internal world or your suffering or whatever you want to call it that, you know, you might not have words for yet, or you might not fully understand yet. I mean, sometimes it takes a while. It's just like kind of like this, uh, nondescript or undefined part of that block of suffering. If we're going to continue that metaphor and, you know, you're chipping away at it and every once in a while, like you get a little clarity on something or, or not. But when you talk about having gone through this like really dark episode in the desert and then you kind of come out the other end of it, but you're still sort of reeling from it. Mm -hmm. Are you reeling from it because it happened or is it like lingering fear of that feeling coming back? Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's both, but I think it's really like I wasn't even completely out of it yet. Uh, You know what I'm saying? Like I just felt like, like I would be, um, like once I did get home, I would be like eating and I have this little kitchen nook and I'd be eating there. And like that kitchen nook became a place I couldn't go because every time I sat there, I felt like I was suffocating and like, I can't explain why, you know, it's but like Pavlov. It, yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's not like a, like a superstitious thing. It, it is. It's like classically conditioned. And I've actually been doing some work with my therapist lately about like physical sensations that kind of occur before the panic attack. Like there's always more, there's always more to learn in the world of anxiety, but what ended up helping me ultimately, and it took months to get out of that too. What helped was going back on Effexor. So I was on a little bit of effect. Now I'm on Effexor and Prozac. Uh-huh. I take smaller dose, smaller dose of Effexor than I did. And then also some Prozac that helps. 
Um, and also, I went to see a cognitive behavioral therapist. Okay. And the CBT was really helpful. Why? Because it's really about tools, and it's really dismantling your own thinking and your own catastrophizing. Right. I mean, am I, like, cured? Like, no. I no, mean, but you I, have the tools. But I have the tools, although I always forget the tools in the heat of the moment. But, yeah, I would say that CBT did more for my anxiety disorder than, like, 11 years of talk therapy. You've been through a lot. I've been through some shit. You've got a burden. I always say this about you. Like, it's heroic how much you have to. I mean, That's you have to, so nice. You have to do a lot of work, but you do the work. I do, I do the work. You know, you show up um, uh, for therapy and all the other myriad things you do to stay afloat. But I, it's a lot. And uh, I applaud you. I, I admire you for taking it all on because uh, that's the opposite of running away from it. Even though right. w- within the context of those things, you know, we all, whatever we all have to do to kind of run towards our difficulties and to address them, we all run away too, like checking Twitter. We doing have whatever. to. I so mean, it's nobody bats a thousand, but in the big ways you're going at it and that takes courage. Yeah. You know, and I guess we go at what, I mean, what, what other choice do we have though? Well, I guess we do have choices. I mean, besides of course, you know, the big question, of, right? you know, suicide, but like aside from that, just in terms of living on the planet, like, I mean, what other choice do we have? Like. I mean, you can try to numb yourself, yeah. but that only, that the irony is that, that, that ultimately exacerbates the suffering. It does. It makes it grow rather than diminish. And and that's the thing. People think, oh, if I take these drugs or if I, uh, you know, just spend all my time with a, uh, virtual reality headset on, you know, it's all going to go away. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's not. It's going to actually, uh, I wish it did. I mean, I've tried it. I know. I've tried yeah. all of them. I've tried everything possibly, <laughs> every drug, that's all right. the booze. All the people, the sex, the fucking, the shopping, the food. I mean, I... You're a good resource on this. You oh. can you can, you can can say from experience, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Uh, in exactly. the long run. In the long run. It like doesn't work. Maybe short term. Oh, short term. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, alcohol worked for me for years. <laughs> right. Alcohol and drugs saved my life. Yeah. You know? But until they didn't. Until they didn't. Until they almost killed you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned earlier open marriage. I can't... My listeners, I got to ask, like, you know, like this is a part of... Um, your life, yes. a big part of your life. I think that um, fantasy yes. is a big thing that you um, are into. It's a thing that you struggle with. Is that correct? I do struggle with fantasy a like, lot. How does this factor in? And like, can you talk a little bit about um, the marriage and like the decision to open it and how fantasy factors in and what role like this fantasy, um, is it an addiction? Let's call it Romantic obsession. Romantic Let's obsession. Let's call it a compulsion, obsession, issues in that area. Is it? Is it? Issues in the area of fantasy. Okay. So he, here's a question. You get sober. Yeah. You're no longer using alcohol and drugs. Right. You're no longer getting high from those things. Right. Is it a replacement for the loss of that? Well, it, it wasn't right away. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of times you do kind of like substitute things, right? Like you substitute... But, um, so it didn't happen. It wasn't right away, but like I, I opened my relationship, I think like five years. I mean, I've, it's always been a thing, you know, like even when I was drinking and using, it was a thing. Like, I mean, when, in my early twenties, like, you know, I fucked like half of San Francisco, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and didn't really enjoy a lot of it, but, um, but some of it was great, but, um, you know, but I think that, um, Hmm. I'm like, how much do I want to say about this? Um, I think that, so for me, I think it's always been sort of a, like a parallel uh, issue for me. 
Um, As opposed to being like an outgrowth of like the cessation of one. That right. Just... Like it wasn't like just the, repli- it wasn't like that does happen. People like can replace an addiction. But I think for me, and maybe it did come to more prominence, but I don't think so. Right. Um, I don't think so. I think it's just something that's always been there, you know, too. And, um, you know, as, as I stayed, as I stayed sober longer, the road's gotten narrower in terms of what I can use to get out of myself simply because like, think my sensitivity i've gotten more sensitive to like those feelings of withdrawal and um so so when i when when my husband and i opened our marriage this is in the book um for a couple of years i didn't act on it because i didn't think like i knew i know what i'm like sort of like kombucha yeah like i know (laughs) what i'm like and i'm not like it doesn't manifest for me in terms of like stalking. Like I have way too much pride to stalk. Like the other person often has no idea like what, how much like mental energy, devastation, anguish, obsession is going on for me. Like, um, sometimes there is no other person. Like I, I had an experience for two years where I was like in love with a Twitter avatar. I mean, I was in love with the, you know, I was in love. I was obsessed with this person, but I would see the person in real life every once in a while. He lived in like, um, totally different state. And I would see the person every once in a while and I, we were just friends. Like I really, you know, if I, if I wanted to hook up with him, I would have like put the moves on him. But I, in real life, I didn't want to, but then this Twitter avatar, it was like, I, you know, I, I fantasized about like that every tweet was for me. And it's like, it's this world of fantasy. It's wanting to get high through other people. But the thing is, if you're in a relationship, like a real relationship with someone for a while, um, you can't get really, you can't get high off of them. You can't use a person you're in a real relation. Well, maybe you can, but like. If you're in a healthy relationship, actually, is what I want to say. If you're in a healthy relationship, like, I, I can't use that person to get high. And that's kind of depressing. Because it's like, wait, I want love to feel like magic and narcotic and, like, limerence and crushes. And for me, that's what um, I was both wanting and afraid of when, I opened my, when, when we opened our marriage. And so... For the first two years, I didn't act on it. I mean, I had tons of crushes. The Twitter avatar was during that time. There were myriad people from creative writing workshops <laughs> that I, you know, like, shout out to high cheekbones. Bro it. Like, um, but then once I did open it, um, you know, I found that what would happen was I would keep getting attached to these fantasies of people, not even necessarily the people. Uh-huh. It was like. I was like attached, like if I didn't get the texts back, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't that I had to see the person every day, but it was like I wanted that high you get when you get that fucking hot Positive text. feedback. Yeah, that hot, that positive feedback that like, also I think in a way that I was describing that when I can obsess about my hair, it's something tangible, to a tangible place to put my anxiety. I think that like with romance, it's a very, it's a great place for anxiety to to live and then you were talking at the very beginning of the, of the conversation about that feeling of being judged yes. that feeling of wanting and, and i think inherent in feeling like you're being judged is the sense of wanting validation right you, you want positive judgment i want positive judgment so getting up fill a, the empty holes baby yeah right yeah. like so getting a text Which back doesn't or, work right it doesn't last there's no amount of texts there's no amount of sex there's no amount of texts there's no human being who can like do it for you like they can't like no it's it's ladies and gentlemen, I have tried. <laughs> and in my research, what I have discovered is that no human being can fill you up. Like, I'm not saying you have to be a whole person when you go into a relationship. Cause like really like who's ever a whole person, like let's be honest. But what I'm saying is just that like 
you can probably be a half person in a relationship and like that's fine and you could probably have a really healthy relationship as like because I don't know that we ever get fixed but the other person's not going to be the thing that fixes it you're going to have to just live as that like for me my experience is that like you have to learn to live with that void like no other person's going to be able to fill it like you're going to have the void whether or not you're with another person right um and so cuz well in like in like a sexual relationship or something that's like really like primarily fantasy based or isn't in, doesn't involve like really deep intimacy yeah that's not a sustainable either i mean you know like there are trade-offs it's that you sad. make it, it's it's really heartbreaking to me that that sort of limerence period or the crush period or the way you feel about someone when you're long distance and you see them every couple of months or the way you feel about someone when you don't know them at all and you project like who you think they are uh-huh. or like the fucking like guy you fuck like five times and like that's it and like he's always on his best behavior and you're like oh this is it <laughs> it's really sad to me that like that doesn't sustain itself in a very long term relationship and it, it can't because implicit for me to that excitement is the mystery implicit to me like it to the high is the not knowing and once you're like someone's you're living under the same roof and you're buying toilet paper every day like I'm not saying it has to, I mean, I still, I fuck my husband all the time and and our sex life is actually, I'm like, (laughs) great, I didn't know I'd be talking about this. I mean, our sex life is better now than it ever has been um, because I feel really comfortable with him, you know, like finally, it it only took me like, um, like 12 years of being in a relationship together for us to get it, like for me to relax enough to have. It's always a work in progress. But it's always a work in progress. But, but like aesthetically, the person you fuck all the time is not going to be as exciting or intoxicating as like, it's just not, it's not possible by, it's inherently built into the nature of a stranger or someone new that like, they are, gonna, they are a fantasy. You can't, you can't use the person you're with every day as a drug because it's just like, they are reality. And that's good that you can't yes. use them as it ultimately. Good, it's disappointing, but it's good. Yeah. I'm still, I mean, I've, I've, so, um. I'm not saying we'll, we will definitely, I am sure, open up our marriage again, I say to myself. But we, we became monogamous after like five years of open marriage. Um, and um, so, and, and it's been interesting. I mean, it's been really interesting. But, um, but so is it sustainable? I, is it sustainable to open a marriage? And I mean, like, is it just, I, I guess like some people can do it. I can't imagine doing it, but like it can be done. You can open a marriage, stay together. Close it back up again. Open it up again. You don't worry that it's going to do damage. I'm not an advocate for open marriage. I'm not an advocate for monogamy. I'm not on any panels. I'm not like in any sex positive groups. <laughs> I don't wear like a brace, a rubber bracelet that's like ask me about. Like I only know my experience. I don't have any ideas for other people how they should live their lives. Like you want to be monogamous, be monogamous. For me, from my husband and I, like. In our relationship, um, it sort of happened organically. It was really fucking awesome. There were parts that weren't really fucking awesome. Just like the way, same way that monogamy, there's parts that are really awesome. I mean, people cheat all the time. But um, but can it be done? I mean, I think it, we did. But I, I don't think it, it's not, I don't even know what's right for anyone. I don't even know what's, I barely know what's right for myself. Right. I just know that like... Um, this was a solution we saw to the problem of monogamy, you know, and we tried it and I'm so glad that we were able to have this experience. But that being said, you know, um, so every, so I'm so sad today. I tweet a lot about like these experiences that I had in the past 
you know, five or six years with being back out there dealing. Oh, it's okay because I like younger men. <laughs> hey, listeners. But no, but this is the thing, though. Is so, that- so sad today was a place for me to put all those experiences, all that disappointment. Because clearly I, I wasn't, I, like, I couldn't have a. I'm not like really poly. Like I don't want like eight different relationships on a spreadsheet with like, you know what I'm saying? Like polyamory just Though Excel, so much work. Microsoft Excel does help manage. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, but you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not out advocating. I don't want to be on any like panels with like, like I just want to like live my life and like right. fuck hot younger guys. I'm like, <laughs> I kind of want them to text me the next day and like be into me, you know, like that uh-huh. sort of, and like experience that beautiful intoxication through them. Um, the drug. There's also something too, I think we've talked about this before, like um, you love youth. Oh, I'm obsessed with youth. Obsessed with youth. And like, I, you know, and then, then at the same time, you know, your favorite color is black. Um, you know, like death is something that like you've spent maybe more time thinking about than the average person. Right. There's a lot of darkness. This is my husband's illness. I talk about that in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, like, you're a poet, you know? Like, you spend yeah, more yeah. time in the darkness than most. But right. yet, at the same time, for all of the troubles that life can bring and all of the struggles that you've gone through, I think there's an aspect of, like, like, there's something in the love of youth that you have that equates in some way to love of life. And that you're... You'd like it to. I'd like it to. I think at its best, that's what it is. You want it to. I've argued that for you. I, I, I don't know. know if you you're believe me. You're always arguing for me to get like the, for the... <laughs> you know what? That may, I mean, there's clearly a part of me that must want to live because I would not be here. Yeah. Like through all the darkness. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but... Um, you can't say it's you, you can't say it's boring. I've just looked for the light a lot of times in places where that, were, that could kill me is basically uh-huh. the kind of the way I would describe it. And well. like ultimately, you know, with this romance stuff, like... I think um, it, it, it's been a great experience, but like after, you know, one particular, per- like I just had to kind of, I had to, to not, whether married or not married, I had to not have that experience anymore because the, there was too much, pa- there, there started to be too much pain in it. You know, I wasn't able to keep my feelings under wraps, under wraps. Like I just, I'm not. I'm not able to to do that. And so, know? but at least you had the the wherewithal to be like, okay, I'm pulling I'm pulling the plug. Well, on I mean, that. as an addict and as someone who's, I know myself. You know okay. what I'm saying? It was just a question of how much pain do I want to be in. Uh huh. And um, well, that's the thing too. It's like you know, you can do it. You can open the marriage, and then you can do this stuff. But it's like, what? How does it all end? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, at some point, is it a permanent? Right. Go back to monogamy, or like you know. But even if I was like single, having this experience with the younger men, like uh-huh. you know all the all the experiences I I recount on so sad today, and all the longing and stuff, um, I think I would have had to change the way I do it. You know, I don't think it really has that much to do with open or closed marriage. Oh, closing the marriage was a way. I think it was a convenient way for me to set a boundary for myself uh-huh. to help me kind of stop chasing youth and the high and. Um, an imaginary, like, I want to have that moment where, like, you kiss a person for the first time and it's new, but I don't want that moment to end. And the problem with that moment is it always ends. And when it ends, or, like, the next morning, like, there's anguish in it. It's implicit, you know? Like, youth grows up. Like, kisses end. And so, so I think that, like, I was trying to find a way that I could stay in that forever. And whether you're single or married, like what I, what I discovered for myself is that like, I can't like inherent in the inherent to 
the beauty of it is that it's fleeting. And that is still so sad to me. Yeah. Nothing lasts. I mean, if it did, it probably wouldn't be that good, right? Well, no. I mean, there's like there's a good side to impermanence, too. You know, if if, if you weren't impermanent, you couldn't grow. Yeah. I mean, the world would be a, would be an ice cube. You know, you know what I'm saying? Right. We need impermanence. Impermanence is great, but then impermanence is also inherently sad. But it doesn't it just... It just sometimes still seems... And I, I, I guess I will never get over the fact, and maybe this is what the teens relate to, I will never get over the fact that, like, why can't fantasy be reality? Like, I have some sort of, like, magical thinking where I just always think that, like, you can live in a high the whole... like. Like, why can't you? Like, why can't you live there? You know, whether it's, like, that beautiful sex or, like, heroin or, like, why can't you live there, you know? Why does there have to be, like, both sides of the yin-yang? You know, it's annoying. (laughs) It's annoying. Yeah. I mean, like, suffering and happiness. Yeah. You You can't have one without the other. If, I mean, if you didn't know bliss... Then you wouldn't know what suffering was. And right. if you hadn't suffered, then you wouldn't know bliss. Right. So and I think the more I've strived for sort of like bliss outside of myself or like those external highs, you know, the more suffering I've experienced. Like when you're on a more even keel, you know, like the higher you go up, the lower you have to drop. It just sort of seems to be the case. Right. Yeah. So keep meditating. Hashtag keep meditating. <laughs> is this something, last question I'm going to ask you, uh, is this something that you have had your entire life or is it something that you uh, really started to feel and experience more with like the onset of adolescence? Like how far back in Melissa Broder's life has sadness and anxiety been um, like really like noticeably present, something that you have really deeply felt? I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to like, before I would cry, I would wind up like I would go <gasps> and pass out. So I've been hyperventilating from a very young age. Okay. Um, but I didn't really start having physical panic attacks till my early 20s, which is when a lot of mental illness like services for people. But in terms of the like general anxiety and depression, um, I went through like a lot of of like hypochondria stuff as a, as a young kid. Like just always there, like a lot of just kind of terror about my body. And then I went through like some kind of terrors about like, I was, I was convinced that my house was going to definitely catch on fire. Like, I knew it was. I had to put a fire ladder in my bedroom. And then uh, terror about the Holocaust. So, yes. <laughs> Brad's favorite topic. He loves my fear of the Holocaust in middle school. He loves that. You have funny stories. I have good stories. You do have good stories. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's always lovely to be with you. And I'm, I'm very happy. This Me is too. like, this is the year of Melissa Broder. No, you, you, stop it. It is. So Listen, gross. essay collection. Put out poetry by, book, which poetry I feel so book, proud of. Yeah, which is called Last Sext. Yeah, t- which is really a lot about what we were just talking about. But yeah, so you've got two books coming out, but not narrative. We're gonna we're gonna sell projects all over town. Oh yeah, we're gonna fucking sell <laughs> some shit. Where are we gonna where are we gonna sell a show to? I think. Where do you want to sell a show? I'd like to. I mean, ideally, I would love to do something on cable where we can, um, you know, be adults. But yeah. I would take network too. I mean, who you know? I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. You won't you won't turn your nose down at no. NBC. I'm open to experience. We'll see, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, thank you for coming over. Congratulations on everything, and I know that we'll be seeing each other soon. I know we will probably like in two days. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right, guys. There you have it. That is Melissa Broder. Her essay collection is called "So Sad Today." It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. And uh, actually, you know what? Uh, In honor of So Sad Today, I feel like I should play some sad music. 
think that might be more apropos. Hang on one second. Okay, there we go. Are we depressed now? Do we feel suicidal? Melissa Broder, essay collection, so sad today. Out there now. And be on the lookout for her uh, new poetry collection later this year. It's called Last Sext. And that one will be published by Tin House. You can find Melissa Broder online at melissabroder.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at so sad today. You can also follow her personal account, and the handle for that one is at Melissa Broder. She writes a, a, a weekly column for Vice. I think it's weekly. You can read that. She's everywhere. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme song music. The interstitial music today is uh, provided by someone else <laughs> who knows how to play the piano. Don't forget about the Other People app. This music really is sad. I feel like I'm bringing everybody down. The Other People app, it's free. Get it. Sign up for premium. That's not free. Support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Tell me a sad story. So, yeah, uh, Melissa and I, well, like, we take a lot of meetings. That's what we do together. That's our social activity. We do meet in coffee shops and we write. And then uh, we also take meetings and we, we drink bottles of water. And then you go in there and you're essentially performing. So we've developed a sort of shtick, which you have to do or which you do naturally as an outgrowth of just being in these rooms together. It's kind of a weird uh, truth about writing in uh, Hollywood is that you have to become a performer, in a sense, in order to go out there and, and uh, hawk your wares. Is that a phrase? Hawk your wares? Sell your wares? Sell your screenplays? You know what I'm talking about. Please remember that Frida Kahlo had one of her legs amputated and that all cats are gray in the dark. That's it for now. Thanks once again to my pal Melissa Broder. Go get her book, So Sad Today, uh, and be on the lookout for Last Sext. Thanks to you guys. Uh, as well, thanks to Heidi Pittler and Algonquin. Check out The Daylight Marriage. And uh, I'll be back again soon with another conversation with another person who deals in the narrative arts, who makes stories, who tells stories, who is preoccupied, who is compelled to write.